We continue this morning in our series entitled The Church into part two, entitled Saved to Serve. Now last week in part one of this series, we looked at how the church was born in adversity, but was destined by God for greatness. We were reminded as well that the term we use in English for, for the church today is translated from the Greek ekklesia, which was not referring to a building or a structure, but rather to the gathering of God's people together. So as important as this structure is to the life of the church, the ministry of the church, this structure is not the church. We gathered in the name of Christ are the church. We are the gathering of God's people. We were also reminded by the example of the tiny mustard seed, or canola seed, if you will, that out of small, humble beginnings, God can and does do great things. And he does them through his church for his glory. And just as God used the disciples in the early days of the church, the 12 disciples, and later on he used men in the Reformation, like Menno Simons, and more recently, men like Henry Shoemaker, who founded Turtle Mountain Bible Camp. All of these men, what they have in common is they started out from humble beginnings. No one expected anything great of them, and yet God blessed what they did. His power was in it, and it led to great things. And so today we're going to begin to focus a little bit more in on God's mission for us, his church, and that we are saved to serve. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you that your word is living and active. We're not just reading history book. We're not just reading some, some dusty words or ideas off a page. We are meeting with you, the living God. Thank you that by your Holy Spirit, you can speak through me, your servant, and speak to each heart and mind exactly what you would have each listener here today here, and then I pray, Lord, that you would translate it into specific steps and actions that each one of us need to take in response to your word. And so I ask, Lord, that you would do this. Speak through me, your servant, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At this spring's Lakeside Christian School grad ceremony, I shared the story of Sir William Wallace. Sir William Wallace was the legendary Scottish knight who became one of their key leaders during the wars of Scottish independence. His most famous moment came when he led those ragtag Scottish army kilts and all into battle over the vastly superior English army at the Battle of Stirling Bridge in September of the year 1297. Now, of course, Mel, Mel Gibson made William Wallace famous in the modern mind once more with his 1995 film entitled Braveheart. He brought this man alive once more and the legend. Many of you will have seen this film. One of the most famous and iconic moments from that movie takes place when just before leading his men into battle at Stirling Bridge, one of the nervous Scottish soldiers sees the far superior English army across the field of battle and he says with fear and trembling, maybe we should retreat and live to fight another day. And upon hearing this, William Wallace replies, I fight and you may die. Run and you'll live, at least for a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that one for just one chance, just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. And of course, he held up his sword and all the men cheered and rushed into battle. But you see, today, unlike William Wallace and the Scots, Jesus has already rushed the field of battle. 
He has already won over the enemy, and he has set us free. And now I want to focus your attention for a moment on the believer's freedom in Christ. I want you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 5 this morning. And there in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1, we begin with Paul's emphatic statement. Listen to what he says. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. You see, today, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, a member of his body, the church, you have incredible freedom. Paul says elsewhere in the book of Romans, chapter 6 and verse 18, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Then later in Romans 8, verses 1 and 2, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life, listen to this, has set you free from the law of sin and death. And these are just a sampling of the verses. I could go on and on and on about all of the scripture passages that talk about the believer's incredible freedom in Christ. Now, the Jewish audience of Paul's day struggled with this mightily. They hated this, in fact, this idea of freedom as though the law no longer mattered. Because, you see, the Jews had been born and raised under the Mosaic Law. They so desperately wanted to do something, to add something that they had to do in order to complete their salvation. You know, yes, Jesus died on the cross and he did all of that, but there's got to be something I can add to that. And so in the church of Galatia, there was this group of Jewish believers known as the Judaizers. And the Judaizers insisted on the necessity of the Gentiles, that's all non-Jewish people, so that would be most of us, they insisted that all Gentiles needed to be circumcised under the Abrahamic covenant, you know, the sign of the Jews, they they needed to be circumcised in order to receive full-fledged salvation and membership into the church and the body of Christ. And so Paul vigorously refutes this thinking in Galatians Chapter 5, that's the gist of this entire passage, and I'll read there for you verses 2 to 6. Follow along with me. Listen to what Paul says to this way of thinking. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. In the words of commentator Jack Hunter, Circumcision to Paul was not just a surgical operation, not merely a religious observance. It represented a system of salvation by good works. Christ supplemented was Christ supplanted. So you see, what the Judaizers needed to have pounded into their thick skulls, what they just couldn't get and what they fought against, is something that we today need to embrace That in Christ, we have a perfect and complete and finished salvation. There is not one supplement needed. We have no debt remaining to sin and to the law. 
There's nothing left to work off or pay off. You know, when I gave my life to Christ, Jesus didn't say to me, okay, Danny, I got 95% of this covered, all right? You know, but I want you to really appreciate your salvation, so I'm going to make you work for the other 5%. Jesus didn't say that to me, and I hope he didn't say that to any of you. He didn't do that. It was and is truly finished. Simply by placing faith in Jesus Christ and in his finished, completed work on your behalf on the cross, you and I have really and truly been set, not 95% free, 100% free. And by the way, let me just give the invitation here today that if you have not yet done so, if you have not yet received the incredible freedom in Christ by confessing your sins to him, believing in what he did on the cross on your behalf, dying the perfect death for your sins so that they could be 100% forgiven, then going into the grave, dying your death in your place, then by the power of God being resurrected to new life so that you too can live a new life. If you have not yet done that, today can be that day. It's that easy. Jesus has done it for you. We just have to respond with a heart of faith to say, I believe and I will now follow. You can do that today. But now let me ask you, those of you who have done this, the church, let me ask you the same question that the Apostle Paul put to the Galatian church all those years ago, and the question is this. Now that Jesus Christ has saved you, now that he has set you free, how are you going to use your freedom? That's the question. Jesus has done it all. You are free now. How are you going to use it? What are you going to do with your freedom? Because you see, while the Jews struggled with legalism, we modern Christians today in the West, Canadian Christians, we tend to struggle with the exact opposite. And it's an equal and opposite error. And that error is licentiousness. Or, in other words, a big fancy term for saying we use our freedom in Christ to please ourselves and the flesh rather than our Lord and Master. And so, there are two equal and opposite errors. One is saying, no, we're not fully free. There's some legalistic things we need to do. We need to get circumcised. We need to do this. We need to do that. And then there's the other error on the other side which says, I don't have to do anything. I'm free. I'm going to party. I'm going to drink. I'm going to swear. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to hate my neighbor. I'm going to kill my enemies. I'm going to steal. And of course, this is going over the top. But I hope you get the idea. These are both wrong. You're free. But how are you going to use it? I want you to listen to how Paul answers this question, as he often does. He poses the question, and then he answers it. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. This wasn't just, this wasn't just a small thing. Jesus himself called you to be free. Remember that. You were called to be free. Now listen. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. There's the do not, and now here's the do. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. So in other words, now that Jesus has punched your ticket to heaven, are you going to spend your time and your money and your energy and your abilities and your resources 
on things that serve only your own interests, things that only make you happy? Or are you now going to use your freedom to pursue the things that serve Christ? The things that serve your fellow man, humbly and in love. The famous author, Leo Tolstoy, wrote a short story entitled, Two Old Men. And it tells the tale of these two old Russian men. The first was a well-to-do farmer named Yefim Shevelev. And the second was a not-so-well-off honey farmer named Elisha Bodrov. Lifelong friends, Yefim and Elisha, had made a vow together as young men that one day, one day they would go on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. For they believed that if they could just go on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, there to be on the ground that Jesus walked, to go to the holy shrines and pray that they could somehow draw their souls nearer to the heart of God. And so after many years of putting off this vow that they had made, Yefim and Elisha finally, finally, as old men say, if we put it off much longer, we're going to die. We won't be able to do it. And so finally they just say, we're going to put everything on hold at home. We're going to put the farm on hold. We're going to gather our money, and we are going to make this pilgrimage. And so finally they make their preparations. They set out, and after many, many weeks of walking, They've covered some 500 miles, and they entered a region where the harvest had failed. Over the course of this long and arduous journey, Elisha, you know, an old man, it's no surprise he begins to grow weary and footsore, and he desires a break. However, Yefim, the more fit of the two, was determined, I'm not wasting any time on this pilgrimage. And so Elisha tells Yefim that he can continue on to Jerusalem and that he would catch up with him there later on. Having made this decision, Yefim heads off down the road. Elisha looks around and he spies a small peasant's hut along the side of the road. He goes over to investigate whether its inhabitants might be able to offer him a drink of water. Calling his greeting and receiving no reply, Elisha was about to turn away when he heard a groan come from within. Deciding to investigate, he entered the gloomy hut and immediately he knew that something was terribly wrong. A foul stench hung thick in the air, assaulting his nostrils. And as his eyes adjusted to the lack of light, he saw one woman lying by the oven, shivering in fever and groaning. And there was this small girl crouched at her side. Then he looked across the room, and there was an old grandmother slumped on a bench. And all the while, a young, thin boy with a distended stomach was pulling at her sleeve, weakly crying, Bread, Granny! Bread. Then a man stumbles in the door behind Elisha. He collapses on the bench and he gasps out the words, Illness has seized us. Famine. He is dying of hunger. And he motioned towards the boy and he begins to sob. Taking in all of this scene around him, his heart broke for this family and moved by pity and compassion. Elijah immediately opens his pack and gives them the bread he's carrying. He then goes and fetches them water from the well and he cuts their firewood, starts a fire again in the hearth. He stays the night and then too, caring for them as best he could. All the while, he learns that their needs are far more complex than he ever could have imagined. They had sold everything they had for food during the famine. So even if they somehow survived the winter, they had no seed to plant in the spring, no horse, no cart, And on top of it all, 
Their land had been mortgaged and was about to be seized by the creditors. Each evening, as Elisha lies in bed processing everything that he had done and what was left to do, he kept telling himself that, yes, the next day he would resume his pilgrimage. But each day he wakes up in the morning and he realizes that he can't leave. And so he says, I'll stay just one more day to help a little longer. And day by day, week by week, it slipped by in this manner. Finally, after a great length of time helping this family, he has nursed them back to health. He has refurnished their household, restocked their farm, and even paid off their mortgage. At the end of all of this, Elisha has no money left to continue the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And he thought to himself, I'm afraid I shall never fulfill my vow in this life. I must be thankful that it was made to a merciful master and to one who pardons sinners. And though he was disappointed at not making it to Jerusalem, he headed for home feeling strangely satisfied and his heart surprisingly light. All the while, Yefim had continued on to Jerusalem where he visited the holy sites and prayed that his soul might draw nearer to God. He waited some six weeks there for his friend who never arrived. Finally, having fulfilled his vow, he began the long journey home. Along the way, he came across an area that seemed strangely familiar to him, and suddenly he realized that it was the place he had last left his friend. Things were vastly different now. He saw men working in the fields, animals fat in the barns, and children playing and laughing in the yards. Then suddenly a young peasant girl ran out of a hut and insisted, you must come and join my family for dinner. Well, there was no way to say no to that, so Yefim joined them. They fed him well, treated him well, and at the end of the meal he thanked them for their gracious hospitality, to which the woman replied, We have good reason to welcome pilgrims. For you see, it was a pilgrim who showed us what life is. We all lay ill and helpless with nothing to eat, and we should have died, but that God sent an old man to help us, just one like you. He came in one day to ask for a drink of water. He saw the state we were in, took pity on us, and remained with us. He gave us food and drink, and he set us on our feet again. He redeemed our land. He bought us a cart and a horse and gave them to us. We don't know whether it was a man or an angel. He loved us all, pitied us all, and even went away without telling us his name. We don't even know who to pray for. And so it was that while Yefim succeeded in his pilgrimage to Jerusalem, it was Elisha who, by selflessly serving his fellow man, succeeded in drawing his soul nearer to the heart of God. And the story concludes with Yefim's final revelation. He now understood that the best way to keep one's vows to God and to do his will is for each man, while he lives, to show love and do good to others. Galatians 5, 13 and 14, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. You see, Elisha was completely free. He was completely free to leave that family at any time and to continue on with his pilgrimage. 
He was under no obligation to them and could have easily justified leaving them by saying he was fulfilling his vow to God. But rather than using his freedom to serve his own interests and fulfill his own agenda, Elisha chose to use his freedom to humbly serve the interests of the family in need. In this way, he mirrored Christ. You see, Christ was in heaven under no obligation to rescue this sin-stained, corrupt world. We were here in our sin, lost, utterly helpless. He could have left us. He didn't have to come. He was not obligated to come. He chose to come and to give his life as a ransom for many. And you see, success and greatness in the kingdom of God is far different than what society tells us it is. If you want to climb to the top of the ladder in God's eyes, you've got to take the rungs of service. The secret to greatness in the kingdom of God is not how many servants you have, but what kind of a servant you are. And I believe that just as Paul put this question to the church of Galatia, I truly believe that God is putting this question to the church of Killarney today. How are we using our freedom? How am I using my freedom? How are you using your freedom? I don't believe it's judgmental to make an observation. And the observation is that in general, the church in Canada has grown ever increasingly self-centered and self-seeking. People pick a church based on whether it meets their felt needs or personal preferences. They evaluate her ministries by how well they serve them, and if they don't measure up, then they move on in the elusive hope of finding a church that fits their needs better. But here's the problem with that kind of thinking. Jesus did not found his church to be an exclusive club for his followers to be served in. You see, how we view the church reveals something of how we view Christ. Is Jesus our master or is he our servant? Have we committed ourselves to serving his mission or do we expect him to serve our agenda? It's subtle, but it's important, my friends. We are his servants. The church is here to serve his agenda. And as the body of Christ, if we are here to be served, we're having the wrong attitude. As the body of Christ, we are called to serve. Make no mistake. Jesus founded his church to be the body through which his followers would serve one another and the world humbly in love. And he didn't just tell us that and then leave. No, he set the example In Matthew chapter 20, when Jesus' disciples were arguing amongst themselves about which one of them was the greatest, Jesus said this to them in verse 26, Whoever wants to become great must become a servant to others, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then we know he went on that on the night he was betrayed, he set the example and he washed his disciples' feet, even Judas Iscariot. You see, the problem of the church in Canada is not a lack of good service. We have the best service I think the church has ever seen before in the history of the world. No, it's not a lack of good service. 
It's a lack of willing servants. So let me ask again. Now that Jesus Christ has saved your soul and set you free, and the Holy Spirit of the living God is beating in your breast, how are you going to use your freedom? Are you going to use it to indulge yourself? Or are you going to use it to serve others with the love of Christ? No, I don't have a quota of sermons to preach You don't have a number of Sunday school classes to teach or church services to attend or committees to serve on, Bayside visits to make or missionaries to support or refugees to sponsor or food drives to run or Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes to fill or weeks to work at Turtle Mountain Bible Camp or a quota of money to put in the offering plate. We are not obligated to do any of those things in order to be a full-fledged child of God. So it begs the question, Why then should we serve? Why then should we give? Because I want to. The song we sang just before coming up here said it perfectly. I serve thee because I love thee. You have given life to me. You see, God knows that the best kind of service is not service that is demanded or coerced or guilted. The kind of service that God is looking for is service which is given with thankful hearts, willingly and cheerfully, because he has transformed us by his love poured out on the cross of Calvary, and he has filled us with thankfulness and joy and hope that what we do will matter for eternity. What God has set us out to do will not return void. His word will not return void. Any mission he gives us will not end in failure. He has guaranteed victory. And so we move forward in hope and anticipation and expectation of what he will do in us and through us. And so I stand here today preaching, not because I have to, but because I want to. I believe that what I give back to Jesus out of a heart of thankfulness, he will use and bless And I believe the same for every last one of you who are serving in this church and serving in this community and loving others sacrificially, humbly. And no one knows what you're doing, but it doesn't matter because God does. God sees. And just like Elisha who left without giving his name, he will add the increase and the blessings will be eternal. You see, my friends, when we are motivated by love for God like Elisha, When you leave, you will discover that your soul is strangely satisfied. It's not what you expected, but it's better when you give yourself in humble service to others. For we have been saved to serve. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that no service given to you out of a heart of gratitude and thankfulness will ever be done in vain. No action, no matter how small, will return void, for you said even a cup of cold water given in your name will certainly not lose its reward. And so, Lord, today I pray that you would cultivate within each one of us a desire to use our freedom to serve you wholeheartedly by loving our neighbors as ourselves. Thank you, Lord, that as we do this, and each one of us does our part You pour out your power and your blessing so that not one need goes unmet and that we find our souls being strangely fulfilled with a feeling that maybe we're missing right now, that feeling of just simple contentment and peace at knowing we are doing what you have called us to do. 
Thank you, Lord, that this is your will for us, your church, the Clarny Mennonite Church. Bless each one as we go out in your name and as we see opportunities this week to say, I'm going to serve someone else rather than seek my own agenda. Lord, just by your spirit, stir within us a desire to say, I'm going to seize that opportunity rather than heading down the road. Bless us as we go. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.